The Resilience Gap by Jill Filipovich for the Atlantic's September 2023 issue. Read by Jennifer Jill Araya for Curio. In 2008, when I was a writer for the blog Feminist, commenters began requesting warnings at the top of posts discussing distressing topics, most commonly sexual assault. Violence is, unfortunately and inevitably, central to feminist writing. Rape, domestic violence, racist violence, misogyny. These events indelibly shape women's lives, whether we experience them directly or adjust our behavior in fear of them. Back then, I was convinced that such warnings were sometimes necessary to convey the seriousness of the topics at hand. The term deeply problematic appears a mortifying number of times under my byline. Even so, I chafed at the demands to add ever more trigger warnings, especially when the headline already made clear what the post was about. But warnings were becoming the norm in online feminist spaces, and four words at the top of a post, trigger warning, sexual assault, seemed like an easy accommodation to make for the sake of our community's well-being. We thought we were making the world just a little bit better. It didn't occur to me until much later that we might have been part of the problem. The warnings quickly multiplied. When I wrote that a piece of conservative legislation was so awful it made me want to throw up, one commenter asked for an eating disorder trigger warning. When I posted a link to a funny BuzzFeed photo compilation, a commenter said it needed a trigger warning because the pictures of cats attacking dogs looked like domestic violence. Sometimes I rolled my eyes. Sometimes I responded, telling people to get a grip. Still, I told myself that the general principle, warn people before presenting material that might upset them, was a good one. Trigger warnings migrated from feminist websites and blogs to college campuses and progressive groups. Often they seemed more about emphasizing the upsetting nature of certain topics than about accommodating people who had experienced traumatic events. By 2013, they had become so pervasive and so controversial that Slate declared it the year of the trigger warning. The issue only got more complicated from there. Around 2016, Richard Friedman, who ran the student mental health program at Cornell for 22 years, started seeing the number of people seeking help each year increase by 10 or 15 percent. Not just that, he told me, but the way young people were talking about upsetting events changed. He described this sense of being harmed by things that were unfamiliar and uncomfortable. The language that was being used seemed inflated relative to the actual harm that could be done. I mean, I was surprised. People were very upset about things that we would never have thought would be dangerous. Some students, for instance, complained about lecturers who made comments they disliked, or teachers whose beliefs contradicted their personal values. To a certain degree, Friedman said, this represented a positive change. Mental illness was becoming less stigmatized than ever before, and seeking care was more common. But Friedman worried that students also saw themselves as fragile and seemed to believe that coming into contact with offensive or challenging information was psychologically detrimental. In asking for more robust warnings about potentially upsetting classroom material, the students seemed to be saying, this could hurt us, and this institution owes us protection from distress. Trigger warnings were only one part of a larger shift. 
Complaints quickly entered the wider culture and were applied to toxic workplaces and problematic colleagues. Students decried the potential trauma caused by ideas and objected to the presence of some speakers and works of art. My own doubts about all of this came, ironically, from reporting on trauma. I've interviewed women around the world about the worst things human beings do to one another. I started to notice a concerning dissonance between what researchers understand about trauma and resilience and the ways in which the concepts were being wielded in progressive institutions. And I began to question my role in all of it. Feminist writers were trying to make our little corner of the internet a gentler place, while also giving appropriate recognition to appallingly common female experiences that had been pushed into the shadows. To some extent, those efforts worked. But as the mental health of adolescent girls and college students crumbles, and as activist organizations, including feminist ones, find themselves repeatedly embroiled in internecine debates over power and language, a question nags. In giving greater weight to claims of individual hurt and victimization, have we inadvertently raised a generation that has fewer tools to manage hardship and transform adversity into agency? Since my days as a feminist blogger, mental health among teens has plummeted. From 2007 to 2019, the suicide rate for children ages 10 to 14 tripled. For girls in that age group, it nearly quadrupled. A 2021 CDC report found that 57% of female high school students reported persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness, up from 36% in 2011. Though the pandemic undoubtedly contributed to a crash in adolescent mental health, the downturn began well before COVID hit. Teenage girls report troublingly high rates of sexual violence and bullying, as well as concern for their own physical safety at school. But it's not clear that their material circumstances have taken a plunge steep enough to explain their mental health decline. The CDC study suggests that over the past decade, Bullying among high schoolers has actually decreased in certain respects. Today's teenagers are also less likely to drink or use illicit drugs than they were 10 years ago. And even before pandemic relief funds slashed the child poverty rate, the percentage of children living in poverty fell precipitously after 2012. American public high schoolers are more likely to graduate than at any other time in our country's history and girls are significantly more likely to graduate than boys. So what has changed for the worse for teenage girls since roughly 2010? The forces behind their deteriorating mental health are opaque and complex. But one big shift has been a decline in the time teenagers spend with their friends in person, dipping by 11 hours a week. A decline that began before the pandemic, but was badly exacerbated by it. Since 2014, the proportion of teens with smartphones has risen by 22%, and the proportion who say they use the internet almost constantly has doubled. Part of the issue may be a social media ecosystem that lets teens live within a bubble of like-minded peers and tends to privilege the loudest, most aggrieved voices. This kind of insularity can encourage teenagers to understand distressing experiences as traumatizing. I think it's easier for them to artificially curate environments that are comfortable 
Shaylee Jane, a physician and PTSD specialist, told me. And I think that is backfiring. Because then, when they're in a situation where they're not comfortable, it feels really alarming to them. Applying the language of trauma to an event changes the way we process it. That may be a good thing, allowing a person to face a moment that truly cleaved their life into a before and an after, and to seek help and begin healing. Or it may amplify feelings of helplessness and hopelessness, elevating those feelings above a sense of competence and control. We have this saying in the mental health world, perception is reality, Jane said. So if someone is adamant that they felt something was traumatizing, that is their reality. And there's probably going to be mental health consequences of that. Martin Seligman, the director of the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Pennsylvania, has spent the past 50 years researching resilience. One study he co-authored looked at the U.S. Army to see if there was a way to predict PTSD. Unsurprisingly, he and his fellow researchers found a link to the severity of the combat to which soldiers were exposed. But the pre-existing disposition that soldiers brought to their battlefield experiences also mattered. If you're a catastrophizer in the worst 10 or 20 percent, you're more than three times as likely to come down with PTSD if you face severe combat, Seligman told me. And this is true at every level of severity of combat. The percentage goes down, but it's still about twice as high even with mild combat or no obvious combat. In other words, a person's sense of themselves as either capable of persevering through hardship or unable to manage it can be self-fulfilling. To the extent we overcome and cope with the adversities and traumas in our life, we develop more mastery, more resilience, more ability to fend off bad events in the future, Seligman told me. But conversely, to the extent that we have an ideology or a belief that when traumatic events occur, we are the helpless victims of them, that feeds on itself. Seligman also found that some soldiers who experienced severe trauma could not only survive, but actually turn their suffering into a source of strength. About as many people who showed PTSD showed something called post-traumatic growth which means they have an awful time during the event, but a year later, they're stronger physically and psychologically than they were to begin with, he said. But that empowering message has yet to take hold in society. So what would be a more productive way to approach adversity? Friedman, the former Cornell mental health coordinator, compares building resilience to physical exercise. It's like any form of strength training, he told me. People have no hesitation about going to the gym and suffering, you know, muscle pain in the service of being stronger and looking a way that they want to look. And they wake up the next day and they say, oh my God, that's so painful, I'm so achy. That's not traumatic. And yet, when you bring that to the emotional world, it's suddenly very adverse. The problem is that this idea, that to develop resilience we must tough out hard situations, places a heavier burden on some people than others. Friedman pointed out that people who grew up under constant stress, perhaps owing to abuse, poverty, or food insecurity, may find that this stress is erosive to their ability to use those resilience muscles. The exercise metaphor rankled Michael Unger, 
the director of the Resilience Research Center at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. Chronic exposure to a stressor like racism, misogyny, being constantly stigmatized or excluded, ableism, all of those factors do wear us down. They make us more susceptible to feelings that will be very overwhelming, he told me. There are, after all, only so many times a person can convince themselves that they can persevere when it feels like everyone around them is telling them the opposite. Tiffany Monford Dent, a clinical psychologist and an author whose work focuses on sexual violence and racial trauma, calls this the resiliency trap. Black women in particular, she told me, have long been praised for their toughness and perseverance. But individual resiliency can't solve structural problems. From Dent's perspective, young people aren't rejecting the concept of inner strength. They are rejecting the demand that they navigate systemic injustice with individual grit alone. When they talk about harm and trauma, they aren't exhibiting weakness. They're saying, yes, I am vulnerable, and that's human. These days, patients are being more transparent about what they need to feel comfortable, to feel safe, to feel valued in this world, she said. Is that a bad thing? Most of the experts I spoke with were careful to distinguish between an individual student asking a professor for a specific accommodation to help them manage a past trauma and a cultural inclination to avoid challenging or upsetting situations entirely. Thriving requires working through discomfort and hardship. But creating the conditions where that kind of resilience is possible is as much a collective responsibility as an individual one. If we want to replace our culture of trauma with a culture of resilience, we'll have to relearn how to support one another, something we've lost as our society has moved toward viewing wellness as an individual pursuit, a state of mind accessed via self-work. Retreating inward and tying our identities to all of the ways in which we've been hurt may actually make our inner worlds harder places to inhabit. If everything is traumatic and we have no capacity to cope with these moments, what does that say about our capacity to cope when something more extreme happens? Unger said. Resilience is partly about putting in place the resources for the next stressor. Those resources have to be both internal and external. Social change is necessary if we want to improve well-being, but social change becomes possible only if our movements are made up of people who believe that the adversities they have faced are surmountable, that injustice does not have to be permanent, that the world can change for the better, and that they have the ability to make that change. To help people build resilience, we need to provide material aid to meet basic needs. We need to repair broken community ties so fewer among us feel like they're struggling alone. And we need to encourage the cultivation of a sense of purpose beyond the self. We also know what stands in the way of resilience. Avoiding difficult ideas and imperfect people. Catastrophizing. Isolating ourselves inside our own heads. In my interviews with women who have experienced sexual violence, I try not to put the traumatic event at the center of our conversations. My aim instead is to learn as much as I can about them as people their families, their work, their interests, what makes them happy, and where they feel the most themselves. And I always end our conversations by asking them to reflect on how far they've come and what they are proudest of. 
That last question often elicits a powerful response. I started asking it because I hoped to let the women I met feel seen in full, beyond the worst things that had happened to them. That was The Resilience Gap by Jill Filipovich, from The Atlantic on August 3, 2023, read by Jennifer Jill Araya for Curio.